Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker, and today's show is vital. It's important. It's something that we all need to talk about. Today's topic is homelessness in our city. When we examine this topic, let's examine it together from an open mind with a childlike heart as we talk to our very special guest, Ms. Kathy Thomas. She will share insights with us from the perspective of the city. You've already heard from Emily Paulson, but Kathy's gonna give us another piece of this puzzle. And I think that you may even walk away today feeling a little more hopeful and inspired. Let's welcome Kathy Thomas to the podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Will, for having me. I appreciate it. So glad you could join today. You know, when I first encountered you, I didn't know what you did or who you were. All I knew is that you were dynamic. You have been such a incredible light in every space I've seen you in and you get things done. So I know that this is gonna be a great conversation today. <laughs> Thank you, Will, I appreciate that. Absolutely. So the first question I like to start with, and I, I ask pretty much every guest the same question, and it's pretty easy, you know, no small subject matter here. It's simply this. How do you define compassion? Oh, I love this question, Will, because I find that my definition evolves. And so today, because we are in the third day of Kwanzaa, I'm going to say Habarigani, which is Swahili for what's the word, what's the news. And in Kwanzaa, you respond with one of the seven principles. Today is the third principle, which is collective work and responsibility. So today I'm going to speak of compassion from the perspective of our collective work and collective responsibility to humankind. And when we recognize that, we are fully operating in true compassion. When we forget that we must work collectively and that we have shared responsibility, we lose that compassion. We lose sight of that compassion. So today for me, I'm defining compassion as Ujima, which is Swahili for collective work and responsibility. Wow, I absolutely love that. And my family is also celebrating. So, you know, it's just one of those full circle moments already for me. This is something <laughs> I, I grew up every year. We would get together as a family and talk about these principles. Sorry, Will, my computer literally just shut down on me. Oh, it <laughs> happens to me. It's no worries. All right. Well, welcome back, Kathy. A little technical difficulties, but we're still going to get this done, right? So, Yes, we are. Awesome. And that's one of the things collective responsibility in, embeds in us is, hey, you keep moving because you're a part of something greater than yourself. So absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, with that definition in mind, I want to take us on a journey through time, back in time to before this was an issue, which is like never, right? No, right. I, I want to start with when I entered the scene in Las Vegas, which was part of the Mayor's Faith Initiative, working on in the ending homelessness in our city. And one of the projects that came out of that work group was, and please correct me on the title if I get this wrong, but the Homeless Corridor. And that is an area where services are targeted and available, and where we're really hoping to infuse, really help and get people connected to what they need to be housed. So if you could share a little bit of background on that project, where it is today, and then uh, maybe what you'd like to see for it in the future. Indeed. So the area is called the Corridor of Hope. Thank you. Yes, it was actually designated, I believe, of when Council Member Ricky Barlow uh, was working with Commissioner Lawrence Weekly. And that name was coined to designate an area where all of the traditional homeless services have been located for nearly three decades, quite honestly. And in that space, you have uh, the traditional shelters, and then you have a lot of other um, services that pop up. There were some vacant parcels available that were zoned commercial, but we knew no commercial entity would come in because they were fearful of locating their business right in the heart of the corridor of hope. The city acquired those parcels about four years ago and began construction on the Courtyard Homeless Resource Center. That facility is intended to step into the gap. Our traditional shelter partners have been doing phenomenal work for three or more decades, and yet homelessness continued to grow. The courtyard then, smack dab in the center of the Corridor of Hope, really was an opportunity to offer low barrier access. What do I mean by low barrier? Traditionally, if you enter homeless services, you need to breathalyze, take, be sober. You would have to scale down your personal belongings to what could fit into a backpack. You couldn't come in with pets. If you had a um, family composition, whether it was traditional or non-traditional, often our traditional shelter partners could not accommodate you because they were set up to serve adult men or adult women or domestic violence victims. And if you didn't fit into any of those categories, say you're a woman with three children, but not a domestic violence victim, there was no shelter set up. If you had any number of other issues going on that might make it difficult to access services, it could be something as simple as you work the graveyard shift at uh, one of the casinos and you miss the check-in time at a traditional shelter. There was actually no place for you to go. So the Courtyard Homeless Resource Center was intended to step into that gap. When we first opened operations, we were open from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., literally in the gap, 
between when the traditional shelters uh, excused their overnight guests and then readmitted them at night. So between the 6 and 7 a.m. every morning, anyone staying in a traditional shelter had to exit that shelter and do whatever. Um, that's another whole discussion. And then by 6 p.m., if you had not checked into one of those traditional shelters, you were not likely to get a bed. So the courtyard stepped into that gap to give homeless people some place to be. We recognized pretty quickly that folks needed some place to be 24 hours a day. They needed ways to access services 24 hours a day because uh, homelessness doesn't take a break. Homelessness doesn't fit uh, our operating schedules for our traditional businesses. More importantly, we needed to have 24 hour access because I may have my epiphany at 2 a.m. I may be ready at 2 a.m. to accept help. I may be ready at 2 a.m. to take a different path, make a different set of decisions, or I may be just fleeing for my life at 2 a.m. Where do I go? So the Courtyard Homeless Resource Center stepped into that gap. And the intention all along has been for the entire corridor of hope to function as a large campus so that the needs across the spectrum could be addressed for people experiencing homelessness. So the courtyard um, doesn't exist in a vacuum. It doesn't exist independently of the traditional services. It doesn't exist instead of or uh, contravening to those services. It exists as part of a larger uh, continuum of interventions so that we can meet people experiencing homelessness right where they are. Yeah. That's a big project. And some of the things that you were, were saying literally brought tears to my eyes, just thinking how, how we've misunderstood those that are our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness and recognizing that to accept help, I like how you phrase that, to accept help is a big step and it's commendable. And it's something that we have to acknowledge takes courage. And, you know, I, I don't think that until that moment, I really even viewed it from that frame as much as I've been involved in this work, you know, to, to accept that help is, is a big step. So thank you for sharing that. I want to ask about your specific role within the city. What do you do and how does that intersect with this project? Well, my job title is director for the Office of Community Services, which doesn't tell people a whole lot. We do everything. Uh, we are, I guess, divided into what I call um, four major pillars. One of those pillars is homelessness initiatives. A second pillar is federal grants and compliance. We actually receive uh, formula grants from the federal government to address blight and homelessness and housing for people with AIDS. Uh, and to build affordable housing. And so our affordable housing programs are there. And we also have to ensure that we stay compliant and that our subrecipients or our vendors stay compliant with the federal guidelines. And so we have 
a small but mighty compliance team that monitors contracts, uh, does technical assistance for not-for-profits, and monitors our progress in meeting national objectives set out by the federal government. Our third major pillar is neighborhood revitalization and community engagement. And that's where you'll find things like adopt a spot and where we paint murals and do community gardens. That's the pillar where we work with neighborhood associations and neighbors that want to uh, organize themselves to improve or maintain a high quality of life. And then there's that third, fourth, I should say, pillar, which we'll call administrative. It's kind of my catch-all bucket. For example, uh, the city's uh, initiative around diversity, equity, and inclusion rests in my department and is part of that fourth pillar because we're looking at both policy and practice as it relates to diversity uh, and equity and inclusion. All those things for me intersect. They strengthen each other. So for example, uh, I am a firm believer that the way you end homelessness is to house people. And so I have homeless initiatives that have to work with my uh, federal grants and compliance initiatives so that we can build more housing that's affordable for people experiencing homelessness or working class people as well. And my community engagement pillar, I really want to educate the broader community about the challenges of poverty and homelessness and mental health. We have a huge health and wellness um, initiative that also falls under my administrative pillar. And so we chunk these things up because we're in government and people like to see flow charts and org charts that tell them who fits in what compartment. But for me, I like to look at this as more of a gumbo pot than an org chart. You put all the right ingredients in so that everybody eats, everybody's full, everybody's nourished. And the distinctions between what I do and each of those pillars um, really for me is um, not an essential part of the conversation. My job is to ensure that there is alignment across the work that happens in my department, alignment across the other departments within the city of Las Vegas, and true collaboration with our community partners so that we are achieving objectives that really make our community stronger, make it better. That's a big pot of gumbo. <laughs> I'm trying to feed a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's that's amazing. And I, really, I guess our conversation today could be if we had to pick a pillar, that'd be that community engagement mm -hmm. piece. But it goes yeah. so much uh, further than just that. It includes the, of course, your, your work with the homeless population or those experiencing homelessness. And then e even beyond that, too, just our our neighbors, family and friends that are impacted by this. I, I had a really meaningful experience very recently. I was headed downtown to drop off some uh, marriage licenses and leading up to, to the bureau, just person after person after person. And they greeted me and welcomed me and were just so kind. And I'm like, you're having a problem, but you're trying to make sure my day is okay. That just yeah. really touched me in a way that I, I can't quite put words to just yet. But it also sent me into a state of what I call empathic distress. And in that moment, 
I almost forgot about their issues and started thinking about how it was impacting me because I'm emotional because they're suffering. You know, humans are special creatures, right? But what it did for me is is it reignited this, this passion and fire to address this subject. And when I see even in, you know, my, my, my own neighborhood, the, the vacant homes and the apartment buildings that are just, you know, there, and I'm like, we have places to to house people, but we're just not connecting them. And it may be because the neighborhood doesn't want low income people there, you know, so that that building that compassion piece in our neighbors, or it may be we, we don't have the resources to properly manage this. You know, I, I don't know all the aspects of, of why I just know that it is. So what are your thoughts on how an an everyday individual can can move these type of projects for where we really do eradicate homelessness in our city. Thank you, Will, for that. The first thing is so important that you saw those people experiencing homelessness. Feedback we get all the time is that these human beings are made to feel invisible. We experience shame when we look on someone else's degradation. And so we look away. And the mere fact that you looked people in their eyes and responded to their cordial greetings was a huge act of humanity. So thank you for doing that. That's the first thing we can do. It's just recognize that people experiencing homelessness are people first. And that their homelessness may be a condition. It may be a lived experience but it is not who they are. Second thing we can do is remember that we are one health care crisis away, many of us, three paychecks away, one bad relationship, one mental health breakdown away from being homeless ourselves. If we just say, but for the grace of God go I, we would change our attitude. And so we would look at a way to align resources and we wouldn't say, I don't want those people in my neighborhood. By the way, I I do not want to disparage folks who are saying, wait, wait, wait. I'm not sure I want that in my neighborhood. We need to look at a context. Often we label those people as NIMBYs, not in my backyard. What I've learned is that we often force the communities with the least amount of resources to accept other folks who have the least amount of resources. And then we criticize them when they say, well, you wouldn't build that homeless encampment in Summerlin because as a community, we wouldn't allow that encampment to occur in Summerlin. We get angry when people say, I don't want those people in front of my building but you don't see other communities welcoming homeless people to camp out in front of their businesses. We impose labels and attitudes and expectations on others that we would not want imposed upon ourselves. So we got to look at other humans as humans. And then let's, let's take some action, right? What are we going to do? Um, How do we spend our money? How do we vote? How do we engage with policymakers? 
And I respect you when you say, I don't like politics. Politics is, uh, Cresswell defined politics as who gets what, when, and where. Politics is about the distribution of resources. So I want us to all be political and vote for people who care about us, us, the collective us, Ujima, the collective us. I want us to challenge lawmakers to create policies that take care of the collective us. And when we engage in discourse, as you and I are doing today, let's not pick demons. The business community, they're the demon. Government, they're the demons. Homeless people, oh, they're really demons. There's the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And the homeless tend to get labeled as the undeserving poor as if they did something to choose that state that they're experiencing. We have to have a different conversation. We have to spend our money and spend our votes in ways that create the kinds of communities that we want to live in. Perfect example. You mentioned that there are vacant apartment buildings. Where's the activism that goes to, just to that one owner, not labeling every owner in Southern Nevada, but just that one owner and creating a partnership that says, rather than having empty space, is there an opportunity for us to house some of our unhoused neighbors? And how do we work with you as an individual landlord to help house these unhoused neighbors? And just start with a conversation. Often what happens is we um, do this zero sum game. Either you're all good or you're all bad. And that's not true of any of us. But when we approach individuals with an all or nothing perspective, um, it makes them dig their heels in, right? They pick a position and they get calcified in that position. Homelessness is the kind of challenge where we must stay fluid and nimble. And you can't stay fluid and nimble when you attack people because they're gonna defend themselves. And they may get to the point where they're no longer even listening. Every time you talk to them, they, they hear an attack, whether that's what you intended or not. And so as individuals, we need to engage, be engaged at the individual level, one person at a time. I would hope that we also look at the broader picture. We, we touched briefly on this idea of NIMBYism and also imposing our will on communities that are under-resourced. Typically what happens when we want to um, do social services, it ends up in a community that is um, under-resourced, usually high poverty, um, lower cost housing and land. And so we go in and say, great, the land is cheap. We can, the reason the land is cheap is because we keep imposing our external will on that community. And we never go in and ask that community, hey, do you want another social service agency on the block? Hey, do you want the drug rehab center on your block? Hey, do you want the homeless encampment on your block? And if they say no, we demonize them. What we're doing is pitting one group of poor people against another group of poor people. And I would hope 
as individuals, we stop that. I know that's a lot, Will, because I think there's a lot that we as individuals can do, but let's stop picking fights with each other and start picking solutions. Yes, that is a lot. And what I heard you say <laughs> in, in a, a number of different ways throughout that, we'll call it a masterclass on how to human. That's what we're going to dub that section. <laughs> but what I heard right, you say multiple times really is we have to see people and we have to see the business owners as people who own businesses, just like we have to see the homeless as people experiencing homelessness. It really all comes down to our common humanity and recognizing, as you, you said earlier, that this could be me, whether it's the person experiencing homelessness or owning the business, or in, in your case, working for the city. Because I, I want to make sure our audience didn't miss that segment where, where you <laughs> are employed by the city to do this. So it's something that's happening that our government is aware of. And, and so that's that's the big picture for me personally, is let's get back to seeing each other. And I like that you said picking solutions instead of picking a fight. Like that's that's the way to go about it. What can we do? Let's let's take it from what we're not doing to what is it that we can do. So thank you for all of that. Now I'd like to transition to a tougher conversation, which which I think we can build from this platform of let's remember these are people, but the city imposed an ordinance that was deemed as criminalizing the homeless experience. And I got calls from my friends and family across the country. What's going on in your city? Why are y'all doing that? And the question I asked, I said, when you come to Vegas on vacation, do you want your good time to be interrupted by real life? And it kind of stopped them in their tracks for a moment. Then, of course, that yeah, but pops out, but it's still <laughs> causing the pause and think. And I said, I honestly don't know the details. I, I just know who I know. And I know that we have good people doing good work in our city. So there's more to it than the news soundbite you got. Can you help us to understand yeah. that entire ordeal from what the intention was to what the execution is and all those pieces in the middle? Absolutely. And I appreciate you for acknowledging that there's a whole story to be told. So the first thing I always challenge people to do is actually read the ordinance. So many people got really up in arms, literally showed up at City Hall with placards who hadn't read the ordinance. What the ordinance did, does, is takes several offenses uh, that happen in the urban core and codified them into one ordinance. So blocking the sidewalk, for example, um, having debris on the sidewalk, all those uh, already exist and have forever. In fact, there's a state law, right? So it's not just in uh, the city of Las Vegas. So it took four or five things that um, someone could receive a citation for and codified them into a single ordinance. So instead of getting four or five citations, you get one. It is specific to the urban core. It is not a citywide ordinance. It is 
specific to the downtown, the medical district, and parts of the historic west side of Las Vegas. Why? Because that's where the businesses are. And there has been some criticism that this ordinance favors the business class over homeless people. And the intention really, quite frankly, is to, to keep the lifeblood flowing. Because if uh, the businesses aren't successful, if uh, Fremont Street isn't utilized, there are no resources coming into the city coffers. And it's just a fact. The city doesn't get money from the strip. The city doesn't get money from mining interests. The city gets money from its businesses and it's primarily uh, sales tax, consolidated tax. Few things that go into that consolidated tax. But in a state that doesn't have very high taxes, communities, municipalities are very dependent upon the consolidated tax, the sales tax. And if those sales don't exist, your roads don't get repaired, your municipal services degrade because there aren't the resources to support it. And let's not forget that it's the small businesses that hire a lot of Southern Nevadans. So you don't choke your business community or turn them into the villain and then expect folks to have jobs. And I tell folks all the time, I don't know about you, I need my job, I got bills to pay. And if you choke your economic lifeblood, guess what? Folks who are living on the margin fall off the cliff and actually now you have more homeless. So yes, it very much said here in the areas where it's a tourist corridor or high business traffic, you cannot do these things. The ordinance was approved in October. The enforcement phase of it kicked in the following February. And there have been, since its inception, four homeless people cited. Only two went to court. How do I know this? My job title is literally written into the ordinance because should any of these cases go to trial, I will get subpoenaed to testify. What will I be testifying about? I will be testifying whether or not there were actually beds available on the night that the individual at trial was cited. What does that mean? That means if there are no beds, let's say I am homeless. We know there are insufficient beds for single women. If I'm homeless and an officer cites me for having my personal belongings on the sidewalk and I'm blocking the thoroughfare, there's literally an app, there's an app for that, that tells <laughs> the citing officer, are there beds available for women? There's no bed available. You can't cite me because I don't have a legitimate option. Now, if there are beds available, 
that officer must call the more outreach team to transport me and my belongings to wherever that viable option exists for my particular situation. If I refuse to go, then and only then can I be cited. So I think that whole conversation got missed that uh, folks aren't being cited when there's no place for them to be but the sidewalk. I think that whole conversation got missed that there is case management and outreach that has to come before a citation is issued. In other words, you have to legitimately try to help me. If I'm homeless and on the street, you have to legitimately try to connect me to services and I have to refuse before I can be cited. So in two years, four citations, only two have made it to the court. None of them have made it to trial because I haven't been uh, summons to say yay or nay were their beds available. And so we track all of the um, traditional beds as well as the courtyard beds uh, in a system. And it's clear, you know, if they're beds for men or women or families with children, which we have very few of, by the way, um, or if there's space at the courtyard, because the courtyard won't turn anyone away. And so that's sort of where we are in terms of the enforcement piece of it. Um, nothing's gone to trial. No one's gone to jail. Uh, of the four people cited, only two, um, a, literally a judge threw the other two out and said that was not legitimate. And only two uh, really met the criteria under the ordinance for those two individuals to actually get a court date. Coming up in part two with Kathy Thomas. We need to move upstream and look at things like mental health and substance use. We need to move upstream and talk about living wages. We need to move upstream and talk about access to primary health care. The reasons that people are homeless are as varied as the people who are homeless.